from music executive to the Beatles and to working and being friends with other legendary artists. Hear how he went from having a spiritual guru to giving his life to the Lord. Just a little note, please bear with us as we are now recording interviews online. Volumes of vocals may be off here and there. We apologize in advance and ask for grace. Happy anniversary, May 8th. Yes. I know what, so what a life all of that incorporates, you know? I guess just to kind of paint the picture in the beginning, a glimpse of uh, your life, per se, if that's okay. Uh, Starting? It's on page um, 11. Uh Oh, the uh, prologue? Yeah, and it's about how you were sitting. It says, uh, well, I'll go ahead and read it. It said, um, picture sitting less than 50 feet away from pumped up performances by Janis Joplin with Big Brother and The Holding Company, Jimi Hendrix, The Who, The Birds, The Mamas and the Papas, Canned Heat, Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, Buffalo Springs, Springfield, uh, Otis Redding, Country Joe, yeah. The Fish, Eric Burden, and the Animals, Quicksilver, Messenger Service, and more. It was a mind-boggling array of cutting-edge, fresh new talent. We walked back into the tower with a whole new attitude about what was going on in the business. Okay, that was the Monterey Pop Festival, yes. So you were born and raised where? I was born in Pennsylvania uh, in the middle of a a very uh, unpopulated area. There was only about a thousand people in my little hometown and it was right in the middle of the state. Then there's no towns close by. And when when I was uh, five years old, my brother was born and he had the asthma so bad that my folks had to move to a dry climate, climate, like immediately. Dad just picked up stakes and and went to Idaho. That was one of the places that was recommended for its dry climate. And he just went ahead on and got a job as a lumberjack up in the mountains in Idaho. And then my mom and brother and I uh, followed him, you know, when they could, my mom could get everything together at home. And uh, so I ended up uh, living next to an Indian reservation up in the Northern Panhandle of Idaho. And I grew up uh, as a kid you know, just down a down a dusty road in basically a shack, and the nearest neighbor was like a quarter mile away, and uh, we were very, very. Um, I hate to use the word poor, but we didn't have much money. My dad, by then, was working in the sawmills, and so uh, we lived a very frugal life. And uh, from the beginning, uh, I had this thing about music. I don't know where it came from. There was just something about it, you know, because I was expected to to be a fisherman and a hunter and and to as my dad wanted me to follow him in the mills, you know, wood mills. And uh, I just um, I liked living there a bit, but it was just too remote. And then the radio station started playing uh, music. Uh, you know, this is in the 50s. And so this is when Bill Haley and the Comets and the rock and roll started and Elvis and man, I don't know something about that just fascinating me, but I never dreamed 
I could ever be in the music business. It was just, uh, that's just something, it was a fantasy world. So in, in time, I went to college and got my degree, um, bachelor of science degree in foreign trade because I wanted to travel. I thought, well, good, I'll get a job with a foreign company, country, yeah, company in a foreign country, and uh, I'll get to do a lot of travel. Um, so I went to college in San Diego, to San Diego State, and got my bachelor of science degree there in marketing. And while I was there, I was in a fraternity and got in a band, a folk group during the time. It was a folk music as a rage and just started uh, playing, you know, for beer and pizza to, to other uh, things on campus and then eventually like little small folk clubs. And, uh, and I graduated and went to work for the Saturn and Surveyor space programs doing time cause balance uh, project analysis. <laughs> and uh, But I'm on the weekends, I'm off, you know, touring around Southern California. And during the course of that time, I met a gentleman from Capitol Records and he was out uh, looking for acts for Capitol Records. So we just kept running into each other and, and became friends. And one day out of the blue, I get a call. He said, did you ever think about going to work for a record company? And I went, oh yeah, in my dreams, you know, <laughs> I mean, come on. And uh, he said, well, we have a neat job opening up here at Capitol. Would you mind if I put your name in for it? And I said, sure, go ahead. Well, I interviewed, I had no experience in the music business other than the fact that I you know, was, was in a band. But uh -huh. he, I got called to come up to Hollywood to interview. And I interviewed against 40 people that had uh, um, experience in the music business. And of course, wow. Capitol Records was the plum job to be the uh, the promotion manager at Capitol because that meant you worked with the artists and you know went on went to their concerts and took them to their TV shows and all that kind of stuff. So it was just a beautiful job, and I got the job over 40 other guys. I don't know why, you know, to me, I thought, well, maybe I'm just a hot shot. <laughs> so I, I go to work at Capitol Records the first working day of 1965. And eight months later, I'm working with the Beatles. Wow. And how old were you at that time? I was 27 years old. So I was uh, within three years, I think, you know, I was like kind of in a five-year window of them. But we were all young guys in our 20s. And and here's the thing that's interesting, that I was uh, kind of a young hotshot. And uh, I'm the Beatles. I wasn't fascinated with them. I thought, wow, this is exciting. You know, the most famous band in the world. And I'm going to be working with them. But I wasn't, um, I wasn't in awe of them. So when I start working with them, it was very natural for me because I by now I was working with a lot of bands and the Beatles were a great band and they were really neat guys. And it turns out, and you, you've got to understand this in the right context because it's not an ego thing or thing like that. It was, they were almost fascinated with me as much as I was with them I because was a young, you know, young guy with a suntan in, in, in Hollywood, California, had a Cadillac convertible and a house in the Hollywood Hills with a pool. And, uh, you know, they had grown up working class families with the with uh, kind of California being this magic land for them. So kind of represented that whole California life, per se. 
Yeah, they were just fascinated by it. And of course, they had a lot. Of, they were fans of the Beach Boys and the surfer music and and all that kind of stuff. As you know, so um, they had a day off, and I think it was the first day off they had on their touring time in California. So they invited me to come up by the house, come up to the house that they had up in um, Benedict Canyon, I believe it was, and I just spent the day hanging out with them around the pool, answering questions about Grumman's Chinese Theater or Mulholland Drive or just you know things about and Buck Owens was on Capitol Records and uh, Ringo was a country fan so he wanted to know about Buck and all that so it was just a, a, an interesting start into going from uh, out of uh, the space program and going to what I call the, the next space program <laughs> which, which is the music business you know and uh, so that's kind of the story in a nutshell of getting to from the Indian reservation land to the Beatles. Wow. During that time, um, did your parents or your family ever say like, well, you're kind of changing or I guess like personally speaking with you, um, did you kind of just like out with the old Ken and this is like a whole different Ken music industry can type of thing yeah it's uh i mean they were really hard country and uh uh, i was brought up in the in the church and never uh nothing about it ever registered with me at the church i just didn't get it but i was you know brought up uh as obedient to my, my to my parents and so i went and i was in the choir and i was in you know, uh, vacation bible school and, and all the activities every time the door was open we were there but it was a strange thing because i just couldn't wait to get out of idaho and i left when i was 17 years old and, and went to college well, I joined the Navy is what I did for two years uh, just just to get out of there. And then I, then I went to college. But um, it was I just wanted to turn my back on all that simple Idaho stuff I was in, in the church and everything. And so now I'm in Hollywood a few years later and I'm dressing like I'm dressing. And, and uh, uh, they didn't quite understand it. My dad always had told me once, he said, why don't you just stay in Idaho and be like you were supposed to be, the way you were raised up, and, you know, why do you try and be something you aren't? Mm-hmm. So, but, um, yeah, uh, and they went through, <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories, it's probably totally off topic, but my mom and dad, I would go home, and uh, they knew that I was not, you know, a Christian or anything now, and, and so they would ask me to go to church with them every time I went. And I went. Well, there's a little Baptist church in the country, and there's maybe 30 people there. And so I'm sitting there, and everybody knows, you know, my story. And so at the end of the service, they would start doing the invitation, and uh, they'd start singing "I Surrender All" or whatever. And everybody in the church had already, you know been saved and all that and i'm just sitting there with everybody looking at me waiting for me to come up and i thought they would play that song forever and i was thinking you know what i should go up from my parents because that would make them happy but then what you don't do something like that uh, when it's a lie you know so that's not good either so i just would write it out and i'd come back and maybe 
couple of years later and do the same thing all over. And by, <laughs> by then I was a new ager. And I had, you know, after a while I had a guru and everything. And, and of course, you can imagine my poor mom, how she felt about that. She never criticized me. She uh, she would just say things to me, well, you know, that's okay. I'm, I'm just going to keep praying for you. And, mm-hmm. and uh, never judge me or anything like that. And I'm going to cut to the chase here on that is uh, she prayed for my brother and I for 30 years. And she became very ill, very ill, and spent the last 10 years of her life really having a horrible time. And my brother, my brother and I uh, uh, became believers in the same year, and she passed away right after that. And I have a feeling she wasn't going anywhere until her boys were home, you know, until her boys were home. <laughs> so. Yeah, that my a friend of mine has a similar story with his mom and the doctor called it a mother's heart where they just won't let go until yeah. they know that their kids are right yeah. and and a lot of them are christian where they they can't let go until their kids um give their life to the lord so what yeah. a what a blessing that is what a what a blessing and a testament um yeah. So if your mom yeah, so are, are all the children in, I think. Yeah. She talks about yeah. Wow. So then you mentioned um, at that moment, you, well, before that, you were, uh, you had a guru and um, some, assuming that's like, what, 70s? Is that like the 70s era? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was about 70. Yeah. In somewhere in the 70s era. Because that was just like the lifestyle at that time right oh yeah it was very very cool you know to be the beatles had a guru for a while and george george was very much into that and uh it was very cool and um so then you give your life to the lord and are you, are you still in the music industry at that time still or no by um what had happened, it was uh, by the 80s, or starting in the latter part of the 70s into the 80s, my life just deteriorated to where I ended up losing everything. I mean, at a point, I had a, a, a large home in the Laurel Canyon area, Hollywood Hills, like it was surrounded by about, I think I owned 15 lots around me, this big home, and I had a, a home on the ocean right on the ocean in Northern California, 10 acres on an ocean. I had uh, cooks and gardeners and gophers, you know, people that drove me around and my my Mercedes car and all this kind of stuff. And and my wife was an actress. Uh, She was in The Godfather, all three Godfathers. And so our our friends were uh, famous record people and famous actors and stuff. And uh, one day it all fell apart. And within a short period of time, uh, through bad decisions and through um, a decade of lifestyle, my life fell apart, and I had uh, I lost everything. I mean everything, and I ended up in um, Nashville because uh, I'd produced also Waylon Jennings and some country stars, and had a lot of success with doing that. And so everything kind of fell apart for me in L.A. So I thought, well, I'll just go back to Nashville and get started over there. And uh, I 
moved to Nashville and within three days I met a young lady and it turns out she was a sold out Christian and uh, through her witness uh, I, I came to the Lord um, so I and then, and then we got married and so uh, every morning I wake up I, I see the person that saved my life uh, <laughs> first person I see <laughs> I love that that's a that's a beautiful uh, story how living with life with God and your walk with God is far better than like the heaviness and the darkness that the, mu- the music industry gives well, um, the big difference between the two lifestyles is um, you're really on your own, even though you may think you're you're not. Cause, you know, if you're successful, you have all these friends, but you find out that the minute um, you start going down, uh, the friends all disappear. Mm. And uh, and then well, it was a funny thing after I became a Christian. Uh, <laughs> my life really it was already bad and it really got bad mm-hmm. got worse you know and uh, uh, the uh, uh, the thing was is I had a different uh, a different attitude about what was happening I knew that I was being tested I knew that uh, you know I was not alone no matter what and so when my life fell apart when I was in the music business and when it fell apart later, or when it you know was not good later, the, the whole difference in the world, you know, just so different. Yeah, they kind of say how, kind of like how um, when you're there's like that quote that's saying I can't remember it, but basically, it's kind of like life with God is far much more easier to handle the challenges and the ups and downs com- compared to life without God. Yeah, I have this wonderful book, which uh, in street terms is like a guidebook. So, okay, <laughs> I'm going through this. And let's see, what does it say about that? And it's, well, <laughs> trust the Lord with all, you know, and, uh, you know, it just tells you what to do all the time. So when I became a Christian, the first three years, I didn't do it. I read nothing but the Bible. I didn't read newspapers, magazines, books or anything because I felt like I you know, became a Christian late in life. So it was uh, time for me to do some catch-up ball, you know. And I wasn't doing it so, as a work thing. It's just I just wanted to, to know, know more. So three years of doing that, and then I found... Now I do everything. Everything I have a question about every trial or every anything, there's something pops into my mind from that book, you know, that says, "Yeah, here's how you handle this." Or, you know, so. And when I was a new ager, oh my gosh, there was thousands of books you had to read and you had to learn how to astral project and meditate and and uh, you know, crystal healing and all these weird things. So anyway, okay. What would you tell your younger self? My younger self, I was, um, I think the reason I was successful is because in the world is because I was naive Mm. and I didn't know any better. I didn't know that I could accomplish things. And I just would, uh, I was brought up with a really good work ethic and, and a very strong sense of honesty and loyalty. 
and from you know learned from my parents and uh, so I just always went straight ahead never never realizing that I wasn't able to do something I just did things and uh, I think well, as far as the music business is concerned uh, I wasn't trying to be in the music business but it was such a part of my heart and part of my uh, you know being that I just evolved there and now I know that the reason that I was with the Beatles is not because I was such a hot shot, which I thought it was. It was because God was going to use that later on, and so He just He just let me, uh, you know, <laughs> carry on and and be there and and uh, really have a phenomenal life. So that later on, um, it would be a part of my testimony. That was really important because people will listen to me about my testimony part. I mean, people are very interested in my my music career, my entertainment career. But uh, when I talk about what you and I have been talking about, they, I have cred. I have a street cred because mm-hmm. well, if Ken was if Ken was uh, somebody listening to me, say, well, if Ken was with the Beatles, he must really know what he's talking about, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if if he says Jesus is cool, he's got to be cool because Ken was with a beetle. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, and yeah, I don't know if many know uh, on the iconic rooftop. Yes. Image. It's very, for me, it's very cool just hearing that this person lived like one of the most one of the most iconic lives ever and he's out here saying you know it's not it's that's not life like god is life you know so that's a blessing to hear well the roof let's switch gears here and go to to something like that the being on the roof was a single probably one of the single most historic moments in rock and roll Mm -hmm. being with the beatles was something and and the Positions I ended up with them by running their company in America. I was U.S. manager of Apple Records, and uh, I just became a part of their their family. Um, became very close to uh, you know the inner circles and spent time with each one of them. And uh, but the fact that I was in London that day, that week, uh, and again I was just moved there. I guess just. I had nothing to do with it. I, I would go back and forth between London. And uh, why did I happen to be working out of the offices? Because my main office was, was in Hollywood mm-hmm. at the Capitol Tower. And why would, why would I be uh, picked that week to go there? Well, I see now it was on to be on the roof. <laughs> and, uh, and so I had been called in Hollywood by Mal Evans, who was the Beatles uh, road manager and and one of the closest men to the Beatles, and said that um, they were going to be doing this live concert to to be the ending of the Let It Beat film because they hadn't played live for two years, and so the concept of the film was to have them close with a, a live concert. And so Mal asked me to check out the deserts in uh, southwestern United States to see if there's a place where they could set up and every kid be invited free to come to see their last concert. And, uh, 
and uh, Mal was going to check the Sahara Desert. And then also the Beatles were talking about going to the Colosseum or, or to a Greek island or to uh, Parliament, Parliament in London or to uh, on a cruise ship. They had all these ideas. And uh, they weren't getting along great. And there was a lot of pressure at that time. And it was running out of time for the footage because the film just needed that final footage so that the uh, director, Michael Lindsay Hogg, could finish up the film. And so I'm in London and they could never, none of, they couldn't agree on where they should do the concert. And so uh, they uh, just decided basically at the last minute to go up on the roof. So I'm sitting in the office, one of the offices there, and Mal Evans comes down and says, hey, hey, come on, we're going to go on the roof in 15 minutes. And I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, we're going to do the concert up there. Well, I'm flown in from California. I, I don't didn't get warm clothes for when I went to London. I would just you know, run from the hotel into the limo, limo into the office. I would be outside 15 seconds at a time, so I didn't really need to change clothes. So I was wearing just lights like California clothes. So I had 15 minutes, I ran out the door into the men's shop right close by and I, I grabbed a, a white top coat and bought it and came back in went up on the roof. So now I'm up there and everybody else is dressed in black basically and I'm in this white coat. So uh, I'm, you know, you can really easy to spot me when you start seeing things. Uh, I think uh, that's for a purpose. That was another one of God's little <laughs> purpose uh, things. You could stick out. And I'm known as the man in the white coat now when it comes to the roof thing. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That's a very cool story. And do you still have that coat? Uh, <laughs> I've been asked it a million times because that coat would be worth a fortune if I did. But I'm, I took it off when I came down. I don't even what I did with it. I just left it in the building probably. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. That's a good story. Yeah. A good story. And when you were, when you did um, get saved, um, did you just start sharing your faith with others? I was more uh, introverted in the fact that I was really learning. And I I was, you know, I was in Nashville, Tennessee, and there's a church on every corner. And I was a new Christian in a a place that everybody had been a Christian forever. And so I was uncomfortable with the terminology and with, uh, I was really more absorbing than I was, you know, reaching out. But one day it came to a point to where I wrote my first book, The Beatles, The Bible, and Bodega Bay, where I share my faith and my time with the Beatles. And uh, it was a way for me to express myself to a much larger audience and not uh, with, without my insecurity of, of presenting in front of people. Mm-hmm. And so then the book becomes successful and I'm starting getting calls from these pastors all over the country to come and speak. And so I, I, uh, I just kept turning it down. I thought I'm not a speaker. I'm not, not going to be a preacher. And, and I don't know. And, I got this call from a pastor in Atlanta who said, uh, I want you to come speak at our place. And I said, well, I'm really not speaking. And he said, well, just hear me out. And then you you think about it. Mm-hmm. said, uh, we had, it was a very large church. In fact, they uh, had bought a, a sports um, 
facility, a giant sports facility. And uh, he said, uh, we had decided to have a, a week of outreach about using the Beatles. And he says, each night of the week, uh, there would be a men's night where they would uh, maybe take over a bowling alley or something and they'd do this. And then on the next night, the women would have some kind of a, a you know thing. And each each night of the week, we had a, some kind of specific thing, but everything was based on the Beatles. And, uh, and the fellowship to draw people. And he said, then Saturday, Friday night, Saturday night, we'd written this play and we'd written this big play that's using beauty music and, and you know, gives our testimonies in and all that. And he said, but we left Sunday night blank. He said, I don't know why. That would be the obvious night to close the thing off, but we just couldn't come up with something to, to do as the big final night. And he said, we were in a, a staff meeting and one of the fellows here said that, uh, and he, he's, he'd been from Nashville and he used to be a recording engineer. And he said, you know what? I used to engineer for a guy up in Nashville that's a Christian. And the pastor said, what? He said, yeah. He said, he's, he's written a book called The Beatles, the Bible, and Bodega Bay. Mm. Uh, and the subtitle of the Bible, the book's name is The Long and Winding Road. And that was the uh, name they used for their week of outreach. And so uh, he said, uh, I look I look up and there you are, you know, and you are a Christian and uh, I want you to come and give your testimony as our closing night. Uh -huh. Well, I don't really know if I want to do that. And he said, look, I went to a lot of work to put this together. <laughs> I mean, no, no, he didn't say that. But I mean, no, he said, <laughs> just, just think it over, you know. So I'm, I'm in church Sunday right after that call. And it was like, I swear, it was almost like God sat down next to me and said, hey, look, I went to a lot of work to put this together. Sure. Having the engineer you had in Nashville, having you put this book out at this time, having them name the same thing as the subtitle of your book, and having that night open, he said, so, you know, you get, your, get yourself down there to Atlanta, and you do this. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, Lord, I'll go. But if, if it's if it's not good, you'll never get me out there again like that. Well, I went and I had never done anything like this before, and it just was incredible. Wow. And the next week or so, Alex Alistair Begg, who was one of the most famous pastors up in you know Cleveland area, with uh, his Truth for Life ministry and. Uh, he called and invited me, and next thing I know, I'm speaking at uh, at uh, Rick Warren's church in in oh, yeah. uh, County. And, and then I'm, I'm speaking at uh, uh, oh, um, J David Jeremiah. I spoke at, oh, at yeah. that church. I spoke at uh, the Harvest Church. I did their men's thing with with Alistair. I started speaking in some of the biggest churches in the nation. Like we did that for 14 years. Wow. That's how God took my shyness and kind of eased me into it, you know, and it, it became it became my occupation. And it's kind of funny, too, because I'm sure you kind of toured with many of many of the bands you worked with. So now you're touring <laughs> for good and to share your life. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a neat full circle. Yeah. And you'll notice in the roof, uh, it's strictly, it's a very special book about the Beatles because I was one of the few people that were up there on the roof. And I had 
the history with them because we put Apple records together from the beginning. I had personal relationships with them and a lot of great stories about them. But in the roof, I stay strictly to... Uh, I wrote the book as an emotional book. I wanted people to see what it was like and feel to to be in London, to walk down Savile Row where the, their office was and walk up the stairs into the building, get the sense of what it was like, the people in there, what it felt like to go up on the roof and uh, feel the wind, you know, the cold wind in your face and uh, to be there and that like five or six away feet away from them uh, while they were doing it. One of those historical moments in rock and roll. I wanted people to get the feelings and the emotions and so the book is very very beautiful for beetle fans because they get to see another side of it not all the facts and the details but they get to see the emotion of it but then that's why if you've noticed in the last chapter i go back up on that roof uh, and by myself and look out and realize you know what this is just a dirty old roof, and uh, I'm, I'm looking out across London right now, and I see things a lot differently, and that I felt like God was up there with me. So I, I wanted to still have the witness. I wanted people to, to see what it's like. You know, the Beatles fans are getting older now, <laughs> and uh, they're, they're concentrating a lot of them on different things in their lives, and I just want them to to understand uh, how later on things are, our list of importance changes and what's in, you know what's in our heart changes. And so, and again, when you and I first started talking, you told me, well, you're, you're not preaching or anything like that. And I'm not either. I'm just telling, here's, here's what happened to me. Uh, here's my life and here's how it evolved. And, uh, you know, and so just so that they can, uh, just get the feeling and uh, they, like me, everybody's gonna make their own choice. And okay. and uh, it's gonna matter, of, uh, you never know when uh, somebody's gonna just uh, hear, hear your testimony and so, well, that, that sounds good to me, you know. <laughs> yeah, and what would you say to those people that are um, thinking about it, they're, uh, having that internal battle with giving their life to to God, what would you say to them where they just need that extra little push or that extra little love or encouragement? What would you say to them? Well, I would say, you know, start with a statement to my worst day in my life as a Christian was is better than the best day I had when I was in the world. Um, yeah. Because there's this something underneath it. You know, I, I would have a number one record on the charts and be, be in my fancy place with all these famous people. And I would be sitting there like, uh, I don't know, why aren't I happy, you know? And then later on, even when I was struggling as a, as a Christian just with my life, I would always have hope. I had faith. I knew that I was going to be okay, you know. And so there was this difference. And I just think uh, when I started turning the corner and started listening to, to my wife-to-be, is I started putting together the pieces from people who had spoken to my life. And they were just like, uh, not, that's what I became later. I never became a preacher. I became a seed planter because I just look mm -hmm. at 
here's my story and if something uh, resonates with you and you know people you know, I found out that things that people had said to me years ago that I totally ignored and totally maybe disagreed with started coming back to me and going oh yeah that's what they meant you know and so uh, I don't know. And then there's some people say, well, why don't, you know, how do I, how do I know what to do? And I say, well, you don't have to know. Uh, just say to God, you know, if you're real, uh, if you're real, God, present yourself to me. If your son is real, let me know, you know, and uh, I'm just, uh, just let me know, Lord. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And what would you say to, um, those that are aspiring to be a musician what would you um what would you what would your encouragement or your advice be to them i don't know if, and i've been asked that a thousand times i don't know if i've ever given a good answer to that mm-hmm. um, because i you know told parents that have come to me and young people have come to me that are really successful musicians are really you know developing nice i say you know that's um it's a lot of, oh, how do I say it? There's just <laughs> a lot of um, bad stuff out there and you're throwing yourself into a world of decadence and really it's a very secular world. And so if your son or daughter are thinking about it and it's very definite that that's what they're going to do, whether you like it or not, then you just need to keep them in prayer, mm-hmm. keep them covered, uh, really let them know, uh, you know, that their background is and make sure that they just you keep in touch with them and and uh, you, you know just really pray that they they are protected the whole time uh, and if they want me to give you an answer whether i think they should do it most of the times it would be no because very few people can get in there and not have it affect them in a negative way at the same time i would never like to have been the the person that, that told uh you know, now a famous uh, Christian artist that they shouldn't do it and they wouldn't do it because if there's a calling to be in there, to be a light in the darkness, that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. So you just really got to put this before the Lord and just pray about it and then pray for covering. But it's it's a very delicate thing. I would hate to say, yeah, tell them to go ahead on and then have it be, and show up, have them turn out to be a drug addict later or something, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and I'm not being critical of the music business because it was such a great platform for me to have a testimony and I had a great life. I've shared things very few people have shared, but uh, I'm blessed to be able to come into uh, a, re- a reality that's, that is the real, the real life. Yeah, what a blessing you were able to essentially be saved out of that and and have your eyes and your heart opened up to God. Um, I see a lot of artists where you kind of see that cute, happy, you know, bubbly. And then, you know, like a, after a few years in the industry, they kind of look like a zombie. Yeah. And it's so sad. So sad. I, I, when I first came into the music business, I saw some of these people that were crazy, and I thought, man, I'm never going to be like that. And about 10 years later, when they went, you know, I'm just like all those people I said I would never be like. Because <laughs> you know? it was so gradual. Just you gave up a little another piece of yourself. You know, just gave up a little bit of this for, for your success, and pretty soon you didn't have anything left to give. 
And what would you say to the artists right now that are mainstream, they're all over, they're known all over the world. What would you, what would your encouragement be to them? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, you just, oh boy. Just, you know, because I'm just, I'm reason I'm stumbling here is I'm thinking of myself at that time. And if somebody got in my face and started speaking to me about religion and stuff, man, I just shut them down, you know. Mm. It's got to be, well, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, uh, Peter, uh, I mean, Paul, Paul was a Christian, and my wife was working with him. She was in television and working with him, and she had dinner with the group one night and said, uh, hey, you know, I'm trying to witness this guy, and uh, I'm just I'm getting nowhere. She was talking about me. Yeah. And, and he said, you just got to let it go. You just got to give it to the Lord and let it go. And you, you, you as a person have to be your own testimony. And because I had a guy, when I come to Nashville and after I become a Christian, a guy that I rock and rolled with, and he was a well-known musician in Hollywood, and he came out and moved out there, and, and I started doing some sessions with him, and we were walking over to a restaurant after a session one night, and he said, hey, Ken, there's something different about you. And uh, I said, yeah. He said, well, what is it? I said, I don't know, you know, John, since I started going to church and met some different people, I'm just much happier. And I just, I'd stopped right there. And it's another word. And he goes, well, what do you mean you go to church? <laughs> I, well, there's this place, you know, here in Nashville, and it's just uh, the great group of people, great music, uh, great message. I've got great friends, and it's just really special. And I stopped again. <laughs> And he goes, well, 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 where is this church? <laughs> so, so I said, oh, it's over on Old Hickory Boulevard, and and uh, and uh, you know, just a pretty. Well, anyway, he was there the next week with his wife and daughter. Oh, wow. And uh, he he would have never gone if I'd have gone. Okay, now John, here's the thing. You know, you're a sinner. You're you're gonna you're got to be saved by the blood of the lamb and you've got to just you know if i started preaching to him i would have shoved him away definitely and he saw something in me and then he saw how i felt about what was in me and he wanted some of that mm-hmm. it's kind of better to live your life and let your life be a testament yeah to others yeah. than preaching to them and then there's other people that would take an opportunity and they would have uh, maybe just really spoke to them and really changed them just through their forth- forcefulness and their and their ability to really, you know, turn somebody around. I just don't have that ability. Uh, I'm better at letting uh, people read my books and, and uh, that's the way I can get the people more and maybe like talking to you right now. This, this interview was... Well, aside from the iconic rooftop... Um, I- moment what's what's your favorite um memory I, I just think it's uh different times i spent with each person mm. or uh they were real people and i enjoyed being part of that group i, I enjoyed being part of one of the inner circles and uh 
the, the personal things like when George Harris and I went shopping for jeans in uh, in LA one day at Fred Siegel's uh, clothing store and we just walked in and looked around and we're trying on jeans in the uh, little dressing rooms there and nobody realized that a beetle was in there <laughs> and all of a sudden when they realized that all of a sudden you looked out and the store was packed because the clerks uh-huh. were calling their friends saying hey get over here there's a beetle in here <laughs> and, and so these moments uh walking with into a hotel with paul and the uh just the people's reaction to him and and the way that they would handle it it was just i don't know it was just an overall thing and you had kind of a really close connection with each one of them personally, right? That's correct, yeah. I, everybody except John. I never had a, because Yoko was on the scene by the time I was working for them, so I never got to be one-on-one with him. Although I did have a lot of experiences with John. I never, you know, developed a friendship at one time. Things were uncoming, unraveling, and... It was very natural. A lot of people say that Yoko broke up the Beatles, but uh, I mean, I think they give her too much credit. I don't think she helped matters, but they had been together for a long time. Uh, They were wanting to go their own directions in life and their music, and and they, you know, were having wives now, and uh, they, uh, just like any other rock and roll group, someday you just got to break up. It's natural. So they had a lot lot going on with their business and with the change in management and, and uh, they were just they just didn't they didn't want to you know sleep in the back of a van anymore together like they we all did when we started out in the music business you know but uh, it was just time for them to move on a word would be um i guess as far as uh this big 50th anniversary of their final album um, what, what's your final words with that? About the final Let It Be album? Yeah. <laughs> well, what's interesting, this is, uh, I'm kind of glad you asked that because this is the last 50th anniversary that they will have. Mm-hmm. After uh, uh, Let It Be, uh, that's just the last anniversary of their product where they were all together on one project. And uh, so this is the end of the 50th anniversaries, and it's just something to me very special about that because we've had so many, you know, with with the different records and stuff. So this was their last album together that came out. It wasn't the last album they did. It's the last mm-hmm. album that came out, and uh, it was just such a crazy mixed-up time. And uh, but I just have this memory of the rooftop and. The being sitting on the floor next to Billy Preston in the sessions and uh, going out to lunch with Paul to a pub just, you know, for a break and just stuff. It's just this really incredible world that I couldn't believe how lucky I was then and now I realize how blessed I am now. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Ken, for taking time, chatting with me and sharing your life and your story. And um, I can't wait to um, finish reading your book. And I recommend everybody to get 
any of your books, um, the most recent being The Roof, um, The Beatles' Final Concert. And I'll have the direct link to your website and um, how they can purchase your books as well. Um, but they, thank they, you again. They can get The Roof, uh, The Beatles' Final Concert on Amazon.com or on my website, uh, mainmansfield.com. The uh, way times are right now, they probably get quicker maybe through Amazon, but if they want an autograph copy, then they can go to my website. So kind of whatever works for the, for the people. And in my, on my website is the book we talked about earlier, The Beatles Bible in Bodega Bay, which is a really a great book for people that are Beatles fans and Christians both. So. Yeah, I can't wait to, to yeah. read that one too. Uh, well, thank you again, Ken. Um, I appreciate it. I I pray you guys stay um, safe and healthy over there during this time. And um, just hope you have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. That was Ken Mansfield, today's storyteller. Check out his website and books at kmansfield.com, or you can also find his books on Amazon. Just search under his name, Ken Mansfield. Now a short message by Philip McIntosh. I'm Priscilla, host and creator of Storytellers. I pray you and your family keep safe and healthy. Until the next episode, God bless. What an awesome opportunity to hear this story on this episode. And we know that you have a story as well. We know that you have probably faced adversities. You've faced challenges. You've overcome things. And uh, we want to encourage you today that there is a story that is unlike any other story. In fact, we refer to it sometimes as, as history. But we like to say his story because it's God's story. And we want to encourage you today that there is a God, yes, a true and living God, who has created heaven and earth and has created you and I. And he has an amazing story that involves each and every one of us. And a big part of that story is his pursuit, his chase after us with his love, with his grace with his desire and hope that we would turn to him and allow him to work his story in and through us. We truly hope that you will learn of his story, and we truly hope that you will know today that God loves you and desires to use you and has a future and hope for you. If you want to know more about his story, reach out to us. We'd love to share it with you.